This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Max Spitz. For some time now, the Iranian people have been actively protesting and rebelling against the government currently controlling their country. I don't pretend to know the intricacies of their situation that have led to this moment, but it has been powerful to see a national movement erupt against oppression and control, especially one that began as a grassroots movement from women seeking freedom of choice. This week, we bring a story from an Iranian-American teller who explores how her understanding of and relationship to Irani women and hijab have evolved over the years. Recorded live at Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago in February 2023, Second Story is proud to present Azadi. Maybe it's the polite Midwesterner in me, but I never questioned why I needed to wear a hijab in Iran. In fact, I couldn't wait for the day, and it finally came when I was 15. As the plane nears Khomeini Airport, the flight attendant announces that women must put on their hijab, so I tie my rusari, which is Persian for headscarf, under my chin, and button up my manteau, which is French for coat, which Persians use for women's long coat because colonialism, but I'm too young to know that yet. What I do know is that at last I'd feel like an Iranian woman and join the club to which I dearly wanted to belong. Over our past trips, I'd stay glued to my father's side while all the women would go into another room together, laughing and chattering, remarking on the traffic, the pollution, or the price of rice, and then re-emerge, hair flowing and outfits on point, which moments before had been hidden from the world. I'd be part of that too, I think to myself as we step into the airport, and I'm mortified. I'm not sure how everyone else got the memo, but I'm the only one with her rusari tied grandma style under her chin. All the other women are wearing long woven headscarves, all cashmere and camel wool, the tasseled ends flung elegantly across their shoulders like Benazir Budo. The rusari my mom and I had thought was so stylish back in Michigan, looks so garish, so gauche in this arena of Islamic glamour. I want to turn around and take the plane back home, but then I see my favorite aunt and my favorite cousin smiling at us at the baggage claim, looking the same as they always have. It's something I've loved about coming to Iran, the almost fixed nature of it. My family would be getting older, but they never seemed to age. The view from my aunt's kitchen window never changed. Pure blue sky and faraway mountains. The smell of freshly cut parsley filling her kitchen with a fragrance I'd always connect with home. After a few evenings in Tehran, my cousin takes me to Milada Nur, a new six-story shopping mall that had opened around the corner of my aunt's house. Nothing in Michigan compared to this glittering fortress of consumerism. All glass and jade and golden lettering in Persian and English, with escalator after escalator taking you to a floor just for jewelry, another for makeup and perfume, and one just for hijabs, with shop after shop selling headscarves and manchos, where the men would have to wait outside or go to the first floor where they sold electronics and kebabs. Well, do you like it? The sales clerk asked me. I just tried on a new black manteau and a matching black rusari with red circles. I love it. I feel anonymous, secure, just like any other Iranian girl shopping at Milad Anur. But I just stare at her blankly. I don't want to break my ruse that I'm not from here. She's not from here, is she? The sales clerk ends up asking my cousin. How could she know, I think to myself. 
I stare at my reflection in the mirror at the red and black headscarf, already slipping off, revealing dark frizzy hair, at the sketchers peeking out from under my manto. Even when I cover half of my body, I realize I can't hide that I don't belong. My cousin hands over a stack of orange bills to pay for my new hijab, which I wear out the door. We take escalator after escalator down to the mall exit and join the other young women walking briskly down the broad sidewalks, in mantos barely grazing their knees, their headscarves pulled dangerously back, revealing caramel blonde highlights, their faces made up with bold eyebrows, dark eyebrow or darkly lined eyes, and bright red lips. It's the only freedom they have, my aunt had told me. For years now, young women have been tiptoeing on the mandatory hijab law, trying to reclaim some agency, some self-expression, while still complying with the rule that women nine years and older must fully cover their hair and bodies when out in public. These fashion statements had become so per pervasive that a mullah had blamed the recent rise of earthquakes on them, begging women to reconsider their immodesty to save the country. Feeling out of place again, I'm about to loosen my headscarf when my cousin elbows me in the ribs. We're walking past a group of men in white shirts and khaki pants, akin to my dad's one and only outfit, and my cousin tightens her usari. She knows that they're the morality police, a select unit of law enforcement who wear plain clothes and have monitored women's dress since the Islamic Revolution. They're so annoying, she says, as they eye us, but we walk by uninterrupted. A month ago, they had stopped her friend, claiming her manteau was too short, and she had to wait for hours in a holding cell until her dad could pick her up and pay a fine. Not everyone is that lucky, but I'm not at that point in history to know that yet. Maybe Iran is changing, I think to myself, as we walk up the sloping street to my aunt's house. There are big shopping malls now, and women use fashion as a small fight for freedom. While I'd known that not everyone liked to wear their hijab, I hadn't realized it was also worth resisting. Here come the zalzalaha, my dad jokes when we get to the front door. Here come the earthquakes. For the rest of winter break, it snows in Tehran, a light dusting that shuts down the city, and I count the days till I'm back in the States. On the occasions we do go out and us girls return home and go into the other room, unbuttoning our mantos and remarking on the traffic, the pollution, or the price of rice, I wonder what else I'm missing about Iran, what's not being said. The night air comes in cold and crisp from the balcony of my aunt's house. It's four years later, and I'm 19, spending my second winter break in Tehran. If I thought Iran had changed a lot back when I was 15, it is totally different now. Charged, tense, strained. My aunt, my cousin, and I sit in a circle on the bedroom floor and wait. There are lines around their eyes now, and significant glances. During breakfast, we watch the news and images flash across the screen. Protesters holding banners that ask, where is my vote? Men behind motorbikes make peace signs, their fingertips dipped in green ink. Women in groups of threes and fours walk together, head to toe in green hijab. The summer before, a 26-year-old woman, Neda, was shot and killed on her way to her car after protesting the election between the incumbent Ahmadinejad and the reformist candidate Mousavi. Ahmadinejad had seemingly won in a landslide, which the majority of the Iranian people had disagreed with, so they flocked to the streets wearing Mousavi's campaign color. Yet, green also represents the Prophet Muhammad, which is why the Islamic regime couldn't do anything to quell this wave of resistance, or at least hadn't done anything yet. For almost a year, Tehran's been locked in these political protests and paradoxes. 
Since my last trip to Iran, I'd moved to Chicago and started college. I'd taken my first philosophy class and a political science one too, and another on gender, and I realized there was a whole secret world of po history, politics, and power operating all around me, imbued in the most ordinary of objects, in the hijab especially. I don't want to just be an Iranian woman. I wanted to be an Iranian scholar, an expert in my field, if not my identity. Hello, Akbar, we hear faintly from the open balcony door. The sky is fully dark and the curtains sway in the breeze. Hello, Akbar, we hear again, which means God is good. But it's another voice this time. Hello, Akbar, another voice. This isn't the Mazayn, the man who sits in the tower of the mosque and recites the open, opening Islamic prayer, calling all Muslims to join him. These are the Iranian people, men, women, teenagers. Soon enough, it's a chorus of these calls, coming through the window like birdsong. And my aunt goes on her balcony, cups her hand to her mouth, and repeats, Allo Akbar, her voice joining many. The next morning, I sit across from her in the kitchen, watching her chop parsley, the news play playing softly in the back. A large bank is being built near her house, obscuring the snow-capped mountain. Why were you doing all of that last night? I ask her. They can't get us if we're praying, she answers. Since Netta's death, my aunt has gone out on her balcony, along with so many others, to put forth another paradox, prayer as a form of protest. As an Islamic regime, they couldn't do anything to stop Iranians from praying, even though they knew it was for the election and for Netta's death. Thus continuing the decades-long dance of civil disobedience and government violence. In the 70s, my aunt, a young mother at the time, protested the Shah, who'd banned hijabs in public, decrying them as backwards because colonialism. And my aunt and thousands of women went out in headscarves as a symbol of resistance and to show their support for a new go religious government. Then, a few years later, in the 80s, the new religious leader Khomeini made hijab mandatory in public. So women, including my aunt, stepped out again, this time with their heads bare. On a steady diet of colonial critique in college, I write to myself how cool it is that women are reconfiguring the sites of politics and power, not just in public squares, but on their very bodies, without actually knowing what I mean by that. By the end of winter break, the revolutionary energy fizzles out and life remains the same. On the plane ride home, the flight attendant announces we are no longer in Iranian airspace. There's a flurry of hijabs being taken off, pops of color appearing and then disappearing in unison above the seats. Myself among them, I peel off my scarf and put it in my purse, thinking that surely one day things will get better. But I'm not at that point in history yet to know that things will get worse. It is cold as fuck in Chicago. It's 2017 and the sky is gray on the day of the Women's March. Pussy hats bob through the crowd and signs with Get Nasty written in pink Sharpie are held up high in response to you know who's inauguration in January. It's eight years later after the rigged election in Iran and five years before another woman, this time a 16-year-old girl named Masa Amini is killed by police in Iran because of her hijab. There's the trudge of our boots on the slushy ground and the sleeves of our winter coats touch and among all these people I feel truly at a loss. I'm 26, the same age as my aunt when she first protested the Shah, the same age as my cousin when she avoided the morality police. And I wonder if things really do change or if they actually just stay the same. Do we insist on our freedom in degrees or is freedom an absolute, where we as women in America, in Iran, or anywhere else have it or we don't? 
And is it the struggle that binds us together or sets us apart? The crowd moves down Michigan Avenue and turns deeper into the loop, the track of the L, tra L above us. Just ahead, there's a poster of a woman wearing an American flag as a hijab, tied grandma style under her chin. How garish, how gauche echoes a voice from the past. The sun breaks through the overcast sky and warms us as we tiptoe dance and march on through time. <laughs> This story was produced by RJ Silva, curated by CP Chang, and directed by Reshmi Hazwar Rustabaki, with music by Justin Cavazos and sound design by Yongu. The Second Story podcast is produced by Max Spitz. Second Story is located in the traditional homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Odawa, Ojibwe, and Potawatomi Nations. Our programming is made possible by the Arts Work Fund, Walter Foundation, MacArthur Fund for Arts and Culture, or the Richard H. Strauss Foundation, Paul M. Angel Family Foundation, Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, Illinois Arts Council Agency, the Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Innovation 80, the Lupo Family, Eric Rothstein and Gina Wamek, Athene Karras and Thomas Applegate, James Lupo, Jessica Wetmore, Hannah and George Stowe, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Max Spitz, and this, this is, is the Second, Second Story Podcast.